The Start On Demand. On demand. With the Black Lives Matter movement front and center over the last few weeks, we kicked off a full day of programming today on CJOB looking at movements and what we've learned from them and what we still can learn. We spent some time looking back at Me Too and what's changed since then. And we heard from an associate professor at the U of W who weighs in on Black Lives Matter and the banning of the Confederate flag from NASCAR. Allegations of racism are hurled against the last place you'd expect the Canadian Museum for Human Rights will speak to the CMHR's president and CEO. And have you ever sent a text to the wrong person? One of our listeners did yesterday. He meant to text his wife, but he texted us. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, and this is the Thursday, June 11th podcast for The Start. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, and a text message from Don at 204-780-6868 at 4.23 a.m. saying, Morning, guys. Save me some decent weather. Well, you just heard from Kayla saying tomorrow uh, looks like we're going to bounce back and maybe a nice weekend. So there you go, Don. Hopefully that works for you. We have an exciting day of programming for you today. Loren, we're talking about movements. Yeah, and I think the question that everyone asks, you know, every time we take a look at different protests or rallies over really important, crucial uh, issues and and human rights violations and, and the Black Lives Matter movement, the question becomes, will this action turn activism turn into action? Will we see change from this, right? And so we want to take a look back at all the different um, thresholds we've crossed over the past 5, 10, 15 years when it comes to really affecting some sort of change. And so whether it be truth and reconciliation, Indigenous issues, um, the Me Too movement, what did we learn from them? You know, was it really just a hashtag or did change come about some of these things and what kind of change still needs to happen? And I think the conversation needs to be for everyone. Are we just going to talk? Are we going to walk the talk? And, and what are we, we going to do about it? And so we've got a ton of guests coming on throughout the day just to sort of take a look back at different things that we've tackled over the past few years, things that we still haven't tackled, the stories we're still not telling. And I'm looking forward to hearing from a number of people today just to see where we where we need to go next. Because I think the, the goal for everybody is to say, you know, in the wake of these different movements, you, you want to know that you're not going to go back, you're going to go forward, Greg. Well, yesterday, believe it or not, was the 101st anniversary of the beginning of the Winnipeg General Strike. And I retweeted something from Christian Cassidy, who does an outstanding job of highlighting the history of our city. And he tweeted out the front page of the New York Times from yesterday, 101 years ago, talking about the general strike in Winnipeg. So our community has a tremendous history, if you like, in terms of protesting and standing up for what it believes in. And I think the question is a valid one. How often do these protests, do these demonstrations make a difference? And I think we're going to learn over the next several hours of programming that quite often they do make an impact, Brett. Yeah, and uh, coming up at 9.05, Loren, we're going to touch on something that we just heard in Jeff Braun's newscast, and that has to do with the Confederate flag. 
Well, we're going to take a look at the idea. And I have to be honest, when this headline came out yesterday, I think, Greg, you sent it around um, to, to all of us saying that NASCAR has finally made the move, the long overdue move to ban the Confederate flag from its properties in future races. And I thought to myself, why was that? What do you mean it was still allowed to be flying there? But <laughs> at, you know, different events throughout the years, the flag has really been a thorny issue for NASCAR because Confederate flags, they'll still fly high atop RVs. They're waved by fans in the grandstand. And so finally yesterday, NASCAR came out and uh, said that, you know what, this will no longer be allowed. The presence of the Confederate flag is no longer allowed at NASCAR events. It's long been a symbol for many of slavery and racism. And so they're saying, no, we're, we're not going to stand for this anymore. They haven't said how they're going to stop people from using the flag or if there'll be fines or bans or if you can't come into the park or you'll get kicked out from events. But the flag and, and what happened with the with NASCAR family saying no to the Confederate flag yesterday is going to be part of the conversation because it's an example, I think, of um, just how much if you keep talking, if you keep pushing, if you keep reacting, it might take a long time, as I said, long overdue, but you can see that kind of change. And so at 905, we're going to talk to a history professor about um, what he thinks might be different, you know, about how the the removal of this flag, um, different issues we're going to get into at 615, Brett, with the idea of, uh, say, the program cops um, being pulled from the airwaves, how even just uh, what might seem like minor things can translate into big, meaningful things for so many people and how that is going to potentially be the difference between this movement and other movements we've seen in the past. And coming up at 645, and we have received permission from this listener to use his text message. He sent us a text message yesterday morning that was meant for his wife, with whom he is going to reunite for the first time in three months. And uh, so we're going to use your text. We, we He says, feel free to humiliate me. There's nothing humiliating about it. It was a thoughtful text. But have you ever sent a text message to the wrong person? Person. So that's going to be the subject of our turkey contest today. We have a $25 gift card for Manitoba turkey producers, so you can text us at 204-780-6868. If you've ever sent a text or an email or any other assorted online communique to the wrong person, and just how bad was it? Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, thank you so much for joining us this morning on The Start. Typically, we reserve our pop culture chats for Friday mornings at 7.37 when the couch potatoes assemble, but but there's been a lot of interesting stuff pop up this week as it pertains to pop culture due to what's going on in the real world. So we wanted to run a quick gauntlet here in case you missed it, and we'll start with this. Where shall I go? What shall I do? Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. That, of course, is Gone with the Wind. Greg, what's going on there? Well, HBO Max has temporarily pulled Gone with the Wind from its streaming library. That's so they can add historical context and denouncements of its racist depictions. The 1939 film has long been criticized for romanticizing slavery and the Civil War era in the American South. It's just one example of how entertainment companies have been reacting in the wake of George Floyd's death in police custody in Minneapolis a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, and we've seen all sorts of people uh, react to that. You know, there was an op-ed in uh, by a Los Angeles Times filmmaker 
earlier this week talking about how it romanticizes the Confederacy in a way that gives legitimacy uh, of this movement, right? And so we look at all these things that are happening around the world and we want to take a look at them because they're important in terms of how we dissect all these pop culture things that in our lives and how we may have viewed them or maybe not viewed them with the correct lens. And that leads us to cops. after 33 seasons on the air, Cops has been dropped by Paramount Network as protest against police proliferate around the world. So the show has been pulled temporarily. It was pulled temporarily from the air in May when protests aimed at police of the death of George Floyd gained momentum. But that move was made permanent yesterday. It's not clear if the company that makes the show, Langley Productions, is going to try to find a new home for it. But it's another example of some change we're seeing on the small screen and the big screen. Also, A&E has cancelled its hit docuseries Live PD. They pulled it last week and were reevaluating when to bring it back. But yesterday they've announced they've scrapped the show, Brett, you know, in part because of the glorification of what it shows uh, for policing in the United States. And I just, uh, the fact that that show is still on the air, I mean, I remember when it was on Fox and Eve pointing out, I can't believe the show Cops was still filming new episodes. That's something from the 90s. 1989, in fact, is when Cops debuted. Uh, That theme song is, I think, one of the most recognizable theme songs. As soon as you hear what you're going to do, you know they're talking about bad boys. Another example of how pop culture is changing with the times. Some big changes on Looney Tunes. There's something schooly around here. So a couple of weeks back, HBO Max launched Looney Tunes cartoons. And it's at, I watched a couple of shorts this morning, and the animation, it, it's reminiscent of, like, the original Looney Tunes. But two of its characters are looking different these days. Elmer Fudd and Yosemite Sam no longer carry guns. In place of his shotgun, Elmer Fudd now carries a scythe. And I had to look up how to properly pronounce that. Scythe. By the way, have either of... Greg, have you seen the way Elmer Fudd looks now with this stupid thing? No, but I'm... Not of shaking my head right now that this can't be legitimate. Oh, it 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 it's part of the. I watched a short called Dynamite Dance where they they were Elmer Fudd was chasing Bugs Bunny around and swinging this scythe at him. Lorena, have oh, you seen the image of it? No, no, I have to Google it right now. He lo- it, it actually it looks scarier. Like it, when he's carrying his shotgun around. I mean, he's a hunter. He's got this gun, but when he's carrying this massive blade that is carried by the Grim Reaper. I don't know how that is supposed to make things better. Yosemite Sam just simply has lost his signature revolvers, you know, the ones he's always shooting into the air. Uh, But they can still do the cartoonish violence. Uh, The network has said cartoonish violence is okay. All the Acme and TNT stuff has been grandfathered in. So Elmer Fudd can't carry a shotgun, but uh, they can blow each other up with dynamite. So... That scythe is way scarier. I know. That's far more menacing looking. I know. You expect him to go out and hunt the the wabbits, but <laughs> for him to be going out and basically trying to decapitate Bugs Bunny <laughs> with this thing, that's that's a lie too far for me. Give him back his gun. I know. He never he never shot him. I don't. Did, did he ever actually hit him? Like I feel like Looney no. Tunes was a predecessor for the A Team, where everyone shoots guns but no one ever gets shot. Yeah, d- didn't Daffy Duck get shot a couple times and have to pick up his beak once in a while? Oh, that's right. Yeah, they would get shot, but then they would they, were, they would just yeah, their part of their face would be gone, but they would be okay. Uh, one more thing to mention here, Greg. 
Yeah, and then this was cool uh, on Tuesday. The first trailer arrived for a highly anticipated movie. Bill and Ted, what have you got to say for yourselves? Be excellent to each other and party on, dudes. Bill and Ted face the music. It's the threequel following 1989's Excellent Adventure and 1991's Bogus Journey. I cannot wait for this. Yeah, it was supposed to debut in late August. But of course, with things up in the air with COVID, they're saying summer 2020, which I guess gives them until September. If they're saying summer, September 20th until the fall yeah. Solstice? Equinox? Something of a year? <laughs> something done? Late September. Yeah, who knows? Hopefully we see this in theaters soon. I miss going to the movies. I know the airport, they've got that drive-in that opens uh, today. I think the first movie there is Date Night. But uh, yeah, hopefully we can get into movie theaters again soon so we can enjoy Bill and Ted. <laughs> Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, thank you so much for joining us this morning on The Start. Have you ever sent a text message to the wrong person or perhaps an email or maybe any other sort of assorted online, how did I put it earlier, online communique? Well, we got a text message yesterday from a listener who has given us permission to use it. He says, feel free to humiliate me. I told my wife about it. She's probably still laughing. The text message reads, morning, babe. Almost passed out in the heat yesterday, dealing with six chains and five straps. Today is just straps. Empty Polaris crates. Loading in London, Brantford, Kearney, and Sudbury. Going to try and get them all on board tomorrow. But Sudbury will probably have to be, uh, or will have to wait until Thursday. Either way, I'll see you Friday. So looking forward to it. Three months apart sucks. Love you lots. P.S. Hope the dogs still recognize me. So, of course, being the disturbers uh, that we are, Greg, I think, immediately pounced on it. And then I pounced on it as well and said, uh, I can't remember what you said, Greg, but I said, I'm sure your dogs will recognize you. (laughs) So uh, he said, oh, that was not meant for you guys. (laughs) So this happens to us a lot lot all, all the time. Rob even pointed out this morning, I do that. All the time. Yesterday, he told us to pull some chicken out of the freezer. (laughs) (laughs) So have you ever sent a text message or email to the wrong person? Kelly Moore, why don't we start with you, sir? Well, I don't know if I've had anything that can quite compete with uh, see you later, babe, on Friday or whatever. But I know even just the other night, Brett, uh, I sent a, a, a text to you thinking I was talking to our media, our big boss, Brent Williamson, because I'd been working on some holiday scheduling. And then I realized, oh, geez, that went to Brett, who uh, actually, I and I had said, uh, yeah, so-and-so will come into the studio for Brett. And oh. then realized, yeah, as in you. <laughs> that, so that happens to be all the time. But fortunately, I have not yet made the mistake. I know it's coming. But I've not made the mistake of saying anything that, uh, oh, man, I am so sorry I said that to you. I didn't really mean what I said. Forte, what about you? Um, well, I can't say exactly what I sent. Oh, boy. But I sent, <laughs> I sent a joke. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. No, yes, you can. I can't. I really can't. But uh, I, I sent a message basically saying, uh, oh, you would do that, you sicko? And I sent it. I accidentally sent it to my female friend, but she sent me right back. She's like, 
this was meant for so and so. And I was like, it's like she knew exactly who it was for. <laughs> it was, oh, it was pretty dirty, so I, I, I can't say exactly what I said, but she knew exactly who it was for. Oh. Just think uh, if that was sent to your mom or dad. Oh, I know. And I've, I've accidentally sent, you know, uh, what are they called? GIFs, GIFs, whatever people want to call them. I've sent, you know, funny things meant for my friends. So I sent that to my mom before. But Oh, uh, God. Well, your mom's a sweetheart. Yeah. I'm sure she understands. Are you still friends with that female friend? Oh, of course. Okay. Okay. I was wondering if maybe it ended things. Jeff Braun, what about you? I'm, I'm in the same boat as Kelly. I mean, and I do it all the time, but it's always just so dull and bland that a, a it couldn't possibly be categorized as embarrassing. It's always along the lines of, uh, I just got the bagels and now I'm going to the car wash. And why would anyone care if they got that by accident? The worst, though, is when sometimes you'll send an email. You know how it does the autofill thing when you type it in someone's name in the email system? Yep. And then you send, like a, like if I'm trying to send Brett a, some detailed email about the couch potatoes or something, and then I send it to some random person in our company <laughs> that I've never met before that works in... Halifax or Ottawa or Vancouver or something like that. And then you have to like sheepishly sort of explain, uh, just so you know, this wasn't meant for you and just ignore it. And I know blah, 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 and that sort of thing. But that's about the worst of it so far. Luckily, knock wood. I, I have something here. This is, this is where being a digital hoarder tends to pay off. I have an email that was sent by one Richard Cloutier to everyone in the newsroom on Tuesday, March 23rd, 2010, at 9.08 a.m. The subject line reads, Announcement. And the body of the email simply reads, I'm pretty, like a flower. The follow-up email from Richard sent at uh, 9.09 a.m., so one minute later, the last time I asked Jeff Braun to close my email. <laughs> <laughs> so that was one where Jeff in purposely Ugh. sent out something, and it was gold. So I, I made sure to hang on to that. Loren McNabb, what about you? Oh, asking me if I've accidentally sent a text to the wrong person is like asking me if I know where my keys are. Of course I have. <laughs> a million times. I've made the mistakes over the years of I don't delete people's contacts from my phone. I just will add a new one. So say a, a friend of mine might be Michelle Toronto number. Now it's Michelle's Calgary number. Now it's Michelle's Winnipeg number. And they're all on my phone. I did the same with my husband. Husband work husband other work when he had his phone switch and so there was a good three weeks in a row where I was sending an invitation if you will to what I thought was my husband's <laughs> phone and finally after I think the third you know flirty is being delicate text this guy writes back for the last time this is not your husband and I looked back and realized I thought it was my husband joking you know over the past few weeks and I had been sending this invitation to the wrong person. So, yes, I have definitely, definitely done that. Did you send pictures? That's what I was hoping. No, that's what I would never send pictures. Mackling, you? Uh, I want to read this from one of our listeners. Room 804. This was sent late one night. Room 804. Ready and waiting for my pool boy. Sent to Richard, my boss, not Richard, my husband. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And, uh, yeah, we also got uh, – someone sent us a screen grab of something that they sent 
to their hairdresser. Uh, so the first text reads, sure, haircut next week during the day at all. And then the follow-up text reads, this getting up early is for the birds. Morning, smoochy face, smoochy face emoji. <laughs> and then uh, followed by, oh, so that was for joy, LMAO, followed by the monkey holding hands on its eyes. And uh, hairdresser says, I was wondering a bit with the smooches. <laughs> Beautiful morning. In fact, sun shining bright. It's a little crisp, but it's calm. So if you're up and atom or up and atta, or how did uh, McBain say it in The Simpsons? Up and at them. Uh, it's a good morning to be up and at them, unless you're in Gillum where Tracy got snow. Sorry about that, Tracy. Hey, we're getting lots of great texts at 204-780-6868 on the text you sent to the wrong person. So keep those coming. At 204-780-6868. Our latest Bob Irving Blue Bomber 90th anniversary memory coming up at 7.56 and the small town salute to Steep Rock at 7.37. Protests, rallies, repeated calls for change. Over the past few weeks, the Black Lives Matter movement has reignited some crucial conversations in our community. Police brutality, police reform, institutional racism, they're all being discussed in a number of cities and towns right now around the world with the hope that activism will turn into action. And I read a great op-ed piece in the New York Times this week by uh, writer Farhad Manju who said that he feels at this moment like the movement is winning. Here's what he wrote. To me, the past two weeks have felt like an echo of that heady moment in 2017 after the New York Times and the New Yorker exposed Harvey Weinstein's history of sexual assault. At the time, hashtag MeToo as an online rallying cry against sexual abuse and harassment was more than a decade old. The Weinstein story didn't create the movement, just as the videos of George Floyd's death at the hands of Minneapolis police didn't create Black Lives Matter. Instead, the Weinstein news broke the dam. Since then, Me Too activism has gone on to upend society in a way that felt revolutionary. It feels like that dam is breaking again. Yeah, once again, those are the words of New York Times op-ed writer Farhad Maju. And as we look forward to change, we wanted to look back on that Me Too movement to see how far we've come. It's more than a hashtag. Nicole Shamartin is the executive director of the Clinic Community Health Centre and joins us now. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning. So maybe from your perspective, you could tell us what the what the biggest change we saw through the the hashtag Me Too. What did it bring about, and what sort of calls did you start to get at clinic? Well, what is the biggest change? That's a really good question. I don't know if I could answer that because I think it was different in every jurisdiction, in every place. But I think that what I would say. Um, for us is that what we heard from people is that they felt a greater sense of feeling safe to call um, and and like that uh, a feeling that they would be heard um, and so what we we definitely did get an increase in callers um, and people disclosing histories not necessarily people wanting to move forward with charges um, but people wanting to tell their stories um, and and feeling like they they now felt like they had a place to do so and they wanted to do so. Um, So what we heard was um, more of a comfort and more of a feeling like um, there was a there was a societal recognition um, that this that that it was that that this was a safe place to do so and a time to do so. Have we seen any policies change? I think we've 
seen, you know, around the world a change um, in governments looking at a lot of things. Locally, we've certainly seen new legislation around um, how we look at sexual violence and sexual harassment and even things like um, people needing to change their um, their tenancies uh, so to get out of um, leases uh, is one that we saw locally to look at um, if they need to escape somebody who's harassing them or a relationship. Um, so for sure, we've seen that. We saw third party, um, the the use of being able to do anonymous third party reporting uh, became something we could do locally. And I think that that's been a really important thing for survivors to be able to tell their story if they didn't want to go ahead with Um, pressing charges. So I think for sure we've seen uh, those kinds of changes that have been really important. I think what we're still looking for or or what I think there still needs to happen is um, there's it's still it's still the reality that once uh, cases get to court, um, you know, there's still a high failure rate. Um, and so, uh, you know, hopefully in the future, we'll start to see um, more, well, one, more people bringing actual charges forward, them actually getting to prosecution and, and actual successful conviction. So by that, you mean, Nicole, that, that people are coming forward maybe more increasingly to tell to to tell their stories of abuse or tell their stories of sexual harassment, but we're still not seeing that result in an, any conviction or as many convictions to match the number of people that are coming forward? Yeah, well, you know, it's hard to say because court cases take so long, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so it'll take a while for us to know the longer term impact. Um, but I think there's still, for sure, there's still trepidation around that, um, around bringing cases forward. I think people still see um, the toll it takes to bring a case forward and, and how trying that can be for for the, the survivor. Often, I'm just going to, often it is women. So how, how difficult that can be, um, how often the, the person often feels like they're on trial themselves. So I think there's still work for us to do in the criminal justice system around how these cases are heard um, and uh, around how how they're treated. Me Too feels like a little bit of advocacy and the idea of that you're not alone, Nicole, and that and that gives people strength. I think that knowledge and knowing that they're not alone in their experiences. And the, I think the other thing these things do, like Me Too, was introspection for those that maybe hadn't been aren't survivors of sexual abuse but maybe introspection and conversation amongst in the case of men about the things that maybe we've done in the past the way we went about things and and a conscientious decision to move forward differently i think that's the hope right like a lot of me too is about um this is a societal problem. This is this is about how we raise our kids. This is about how we talk about gender. This is about how we talk about power. Um, this is this is about how we talk about relationships. This is about how we talk about being healthy together. Right? Like it's about so many things. It's about consent. It's about. Um, and so I think for 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 many men, um, there 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 is a bit of a reckoning around, 
you know, how, what, what are the jokes I've told? What are the conversations I've had? What are, and, you know, you, you hear a lot of men uh, and, and I hate to, you know, genderize, but I, but I'm not him, right. I'm not, I'm not Harvey Weinstein. I'm not, I've never, I've never behaved like this. And, and, and I'm sure that's true absolutely for the majority of, of, of men that we, that, you know, but but the reality is, what what have you participated in, and how can you help? Is a really good question, right? Like really thinking about how can you help this conversation, and how can you be supportive in your environment. Nicole Shamartin is the executive director of the Clinic Community Health Center, joining us live on six eighty CJOB. Nicole, thank you very much for this. Thanks for having me. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, we have a $25 gift card for Manitoba Turkey Producers up for grabs, and we're going to give it away at 9.15 to someone who is texting us at 204-780-6868. We are asking you to share your stories of text messages that were meant for one person, but you sent it to someone else. After yesterday, one of our listeners sent us a loving text that was meant for his wife. And he said, you can go ahead and use it if you guys want. So, uh, Greg, what are you seeing here? We're getting all, all kinds of great stories. Well, uh, one of my favorite texters is also named Greg. He says, I can't say I've ever sent a text to a wrong number. I always end my conversations with, I love you to my wife's kids and my mom before I hang up the phone. On more than one occasion, I've ended a conversation with my boss with, love you. The sad part is he's never said it back. <laughs> oh, come on. You got to say it back. Yeah. I love I this one because it kind of fits in with the kind of things I've done. Um, this is from a listener who texted to say, late one night I texted, room 804, ready and waiting for my pool boy. <laughs> Sent it to Richard, my boss, not Richard, my husband, which is pretty funny now, but seeing my boss the next day, awkward. And this one jumped out for me because I've actually been in a similar position recently. Uh, this one reads, I was talking to two guys from Tinder who both gave me their numbers. I was interested way more in one of the guys. I accidentally texted the guy I wasn't so interested in, and I was being over-the-top flirty. I realized it wasn't the guy I wanted, so I had to continue being flirty. Turns out I dated that guy for a bit, and the guy I was initially interested in kind of faded into the background. And the, yeah, I did that a uh, little while ago. I mixed up uh, two two women's and uh, th- almost the same scenario ended up going down. So keep those texts coming at 204-780-6868. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, as we talk today about movements like Black Lives Matter and racism, this next story focuses on allegations I think that are, quite frankly, sadly ironic. Yeah, the Canadian Museum for Human Rights is being accused of racism and mistreatment by former employees who have shared their stories online. So there's a lengthy thread on Reddit. There are also various social media accounts and the hashtag CMHR stop lying. So some of the stories, they include workers saying they were treated, quote, viciously after speaking out against racism and homophobia. And then there's another worker who says they weren't allowed to wear a beaded keychain they got as a gift from an elder. And the list goes on and on. Yeah, some of the allegations are very specific. John Young is pre- president and CEO of the Canadian Museum for Human Rights and joins us now live on the start. John, thank you for this. Good morning. You released a statement uh, on Tuesday night. When did you first hear about these posts? When did you see them? And and of course, we want to know what was your reaction. 
Uh, posts uh, began to emerge uh, late last week and, uh, and through this week. Um, reaction is, uh, you know, this is, we want to acknowledge that uh, these statements and uh, concerns are very serious and uh, also want to acknowledge the frustration of those who have raised them. There's the acknowledgement that you've made and, and saying that they're serious, and then there's doing something about it, John. So what's going to be done about the allegations? What sort of investigation might there be as a result? Yeah, we recognize we have a very important obligation and responsibility uh, to, to respond and to act accordingly, according to our mandate, which is, uh, you know, we're, we're, we seek to promote the principle that all people are born free and equal in dignity and rights. And so these allegations are, are an important uh, challenge to us. We will be acting with a variety of approaches, um, both internally and bringing in some external support uh, and review of the processes and uh, policies we have. You talk about in your statement, uh, you know, identifying shortcomings and, and blind spots, both within, and you quote, to quote your statement, both within, within ourselves as individuals and within the museum and take concrete steps to improve. I guess, when is this process going to begin? Well, it's already beginning. Uh, currently, we're developing the uh, specific plans. Uh, we've reached out to a number of uh, external people to bring in some expertise and experience. And, um, you know, this is a long process. It's not going to happen. Uh, it's not going to be finished uh, immediately. And I think it's reflective of the challenge we all face, not just here at the museum, but uh, in society generally. The challenges of addressing systemic race and racism um, will be, uh, you know, this is a long-term climb that all of us uh, need to be engaged with. And, of course, we'll all be judged by our actions and what we do, not the words that we present, the words we chant or, or hashtag. Of all the places for workers to, to feel like they've been mistreated, John, the, the last place we, we'd think that this would happen would be the CMHR. How do you feel about that statement, that sentiment? Yeah, we recognize that uh, we're, we're expected to achieve a higher standard, and frankly, we expect that of ourselves as well. So these are sobering uh, allegations and require our best efforts. Uh, I hold myself accountable, and um, this is work that needs to be done. It's not going to be easy, but uh, we're committed to being transparent and, um, and very open about how we're addressing these challenges. It's about not just reviewing, you know, the allegations, John, but taking a look at how you deal with them internally in terms of how HR might respond or how the complaints are dealt with through human resources and the process there. Because, you know, some of the allegations that have people saying that they did raise their concerns are not just doing it after the fact that they raised their concerns at the time and were met with um, or were, were dismissed. So it's not just about people coming out now that some came out and were ignored, they feel. Yeah, I have uh, great confidence in the professionals that we have at the museum and in in their role uh, in uh, addressing concerns. Uh, we also recognize that uh, bringing in uh, some external uh, review can help us identify if there have been any gaps or also to uh, help us recognize the things that we may be doing well as well. John, I have to ask you, how does something like this happen in an organized like yours it's just you know it, it, it's it's baffling it's disturbing it's almost unbelievable 
Well, we're, you know, this is uh, lots of different pursuits in the museum all at the same time. I say that as, a, as a, you know, the focus can be on many different projects all at once. Uh, we do have a number of employees who um, uh, feel that we have um, not met the standards that we need to meet. So we will be listening to them, both internal, current employees and former employees, and seeking the best ways to address their concerns. John Young is the president and CEO of the Canadian Museum for Human Rights, joining us live on 680 CJOB. John, thank you so much for the time. We very much appreciate uh, the availability this morning. Thanks for the opportunity. But we start this half hour with something interesting, uh, I think, that happened to Greg yesterday, and it involves the advances in technology, which over the past decade or so, have been designed to connect us in ways only it imagined just 20 years ago. Yeah, and we're really living examples of many of these changes. Brett, as we speak, we're three of us are co-hosting this program from three different locations. We've been doing that now for, I think it's almost three months. And this is all because of micro and nanotechnologies that have allowed us to broadcast with a laptop computer and just one other device. And, and quite frankly, I still don't even understand how this is working while I talk to you, but it's working. And it's something that wasn't even an option just a handful of years ago. Take a look at Facebook, other social media platforms. They've been around forever. But in the case of Facebook, uh, which launched in February of 2004, 16 years later, you might not realize all it's added or taken away from your life, depending on how you look at it. And of course, there's our phones. They're like pocket computers. They're functional TVs, DVD players, cameras. They can be fantastic. They can be a great tool in our lives. But we also sometimes, I think, Greg, are asking the question, how much technology is too much technology? Yeah. So yesterday, I think I had my latest whoa uh, moment with technology. I called my cell service provider to talk to them about my bill. And when I called uh, the IVR, I worked my way through that. And, you know, you press three for this, six for that. And so finally, I'm connected to a live agent. And the live agent uh, you know, he's working from home, pleasant enough. And uh, so we're, he asked me my name, I give it. And of course, what's next? Two or three questions to confirm my identity. Well, no, the agent informs me that my voice has been used to authenticate my identity. It genuinely caught me off guard. And Ritesh Kotak is a digital security expert. He joins us again right here on CJOB. Good morning, Ritesh. Good morning. So what is this technology which verified who I was yesterday? It's my first encounter with it personally. Is it new? It's not new. It's actually been around since the 70s. Now, obviously, like anything, it's evolved, gone a lot better, gone a lot more accurate. But it's one of two things. The first is voice identification. So, <clears throat> sorry, can I identify the speaker? But what happened with you was voice verification. Can I confirm the identity of the person that's calling? That's important to know that the current system, well, I guess the previous system before this, was very antiquated. You got to call in. There, um, you could verify with information that's publicly available. I don't know how many times you probably have the question, what's your mother's maiden name? Well, a lot of that is public record or it could be found on social media. So these companies, in order to prevent fraudsters from taking over your accounts, are looking at new innovative technology to secure your account. And one of them is voice identification systems. 
So uh, I can appreciate that there was room and all that, you know, asking for my mother's maiden name. There's room in that to for fraud. And I understand that we want to use technology to help us. And I can appreciate that, you know, when I put my thumbprint on my phone, that that's going to be authentic. But how is it verifying my voice? It makes me nervous to think that 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 might not be the way to go, because can't that be can't 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 that also lead to fraud? Like, how good is this technology that it really is making sure it's me talking? So no system is 100% accurate, and there's always going to – and if we build it, hackers will figure out a way to break it. However, the technology when it comes to breaking this type of, uh, this type of authentication measure is still not quite there yet. Essentially, this – you know, you can think of some Hollywood films here where um, you have someone's voice and you just start talking naturally and it automatically starts translating – um, and making it sound like you with the right pitch, the right tone, the right verbiage. Well, it's not really quite there yet. Now, here's another another thing to remember is that these uh, these companies are using multi-factor authentication. So not only are they using your voice, but when you called in, you're probably calling in from the number that's already on your account. You verified your name. You might verify other information. And now that gets you access right in. So it's one of many steps to actually get uh, access and prevent fraudsters from taking over your account. It's not just voice. Yeah, my reaction yesterday, and I was kind of embarrassed with my reaction at just how I felt like a conspiracy theorist who immediately jumped to, well, what if they have a recording of my voice? But uh, should I maybe be embarrassed by that, by that reaction? Well, again, here's, here's the thing, right? With voice, it's really easy to get somebody's voice. It could be, they could be on the radio. They could, uh, you could record a phone conversation. So voice is very easy to get a hold of. However, it is, it's very difficult to manipulate for these types of purposes. Now, I always encourage people, if, uh, if they have any questions and want to learn more about it, different agencies might be using different systems, different platforms, different softwares, different algorithms. Give them a call. Ask them what they're using. See if there's other ways that you could authenticate if you find this very creepy. So if you have any questions, you know, of how your voice might be using this service, then make sure that you actually voice your concerns with the providers. Digital digital security expert Ritesh Kotak is our guest. And Ritesh, I got to ask you about uh, just this whole notion that this technology has been around for, you said the 70s, so almost 50 years now. So clearly they're perfecting it and use at a point where they feel comfortable in using this as one of the authentication measures. What other things are, are digital security organizations and creators working on right now that might have seen like science fiction even 30 years ago, but uh, are something that we might start to see. Like uh, Loren mentioned the thumbprint on our phone. I, I don't know until I actually saw it uh, on my Apple iPhone, I guess it was four or five years ago. I imagine that they'd be getting there. And then, of course, you have the facial recognition on the iPhones now as well. Yeah, so when it comes to when it comes to authentication, I guess by anything biometrical related um, is is definitely on the rise. We're seeing new levels of encryption to get very technical. There's something called multi homomorphic encryption. So again, it can get really complex, some really interesting math problems. But think about it this way is right now we you might be using facial recognition or we might you might be using a thumbprint. In the future, what might the authentication might be is say this sentence or take your camera and show me the left side of your face. Uh, and it keeps changing around. And the reason for that is 
to, again, to prevent fraudsters from getting access to your account and being 100% sure. By the way, nothing is 100% sure. Again, if we build it, hackers will figure out a way to break it. But we can get to the point where it can be extremely difficult because this is a game of, of cat and mouse and um, the hackers are right behind us and we've got to do everything to protect ourselves in the social cyber digital world. Ritesh Kotak is a digital security expert joining us live on 680 CJOB. Ritesh, thank you so much for this. Much appreciated. Thank you so much for having me. And Greg, yeah, I would have had that same reaction. I, I admit, anytime I get a, if I get a phone call from a, a number I don't recognize, I'm leery to answer it. And then when I, if I do answer it and they say, hi, can I speak with Brett, please? Or is this Brett? I'm even reluctant to say yes, because I know that there are scammers out there who just want to get that sort of permission from you. So sometimes I'll get a call. I remember getting a call once and they said, hi, is this Brett? And I kind of, I just sort of sheepishly said, yes. <laughs> I always was told to answer the phone a certain way. It was brought up to answer the phone uh, this way. You know, hello, and uh, uh, Greg speaking. And uh, I don't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be in my, and even in my business world, uh, that's one thing if you're getting transferred a phone call on an internal system or something. And I used to answer my cell phone the exact same way. I do not do that anymore. And Brett, I'm like you. Loren, I think you're the same. If you don't know who's calling, uh, you're reluctant to answer it. I don't answer it. And if somebody asks for me, I, I, I kind of ask them back, well, who wants to know? Who are you? Yeah. Before I'm going to tell you if I'm me, who are you? It gets hard to say, hey, Loren speaking. Oh, hi, uh, Miss McNabb. We want to talk to you about your bank account. Nope, wrong Loren. Click. It's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty hard to do that when you answer the phone like that. <laughs> Right now, we want to continue our conversation on the Confederate flag and NASCAR. Well, there's been all sorts of conversations over the past few weeks about uh, what the Black Lives Matter movement has done, how it's reignited some crucial conversations in our community, and, and the hope that activism will lead to action. So we've seen some action. Minneapolis, the use of chokeholds and neck restraints has been banned, and there are promises to completely reform the police department in that city. Defunding police and the use of body cameras, they've all been discussed here in Winnipeg. And again, right now we're just at the discussion phase, but the fact remains that talk is happening. And then we're seeing some other shifts under Some demonstrators in the U.S. calling for the renaming of army bases named after Confederate generals. We've had entertainment companies uh, like HBO Max temporarily pulling the movie Gone with the Wind from its streaming library because they want to add historical context and denouncement of some of its racist depictions. And of course, yesterday, Brett, as you mentioned, NASCAR announced the Confederate flag, a longtime symbol to many of racism and slavery, is no longer welcome in stock car races. Paul Laurie is an associate professor in the Department of History at the University of Winnipeg, and he also writes and researches extensively on issues of race, labor, and urbanism in modern America. And he's our guest this morning. Good morning, Paul. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for taking the time for being with us. You know, we we want to talk about this kind of activism and, and it's spurring on some action. When you see the kind of changes that we've had just in the short few weeks, are you hopeful or does history tell us this is just how movements go, two steps forward, one step back? Well, I think much of what we're seeing uh, undoubtedly is unprecedented, particularly in its pacing. Uh, You mentioned the defunding movement uh, in Minneapolis and and some of the key questions that are being asked about uh, policing and the actions being taken. Uh, I think the pace of 
uh, potential reform is quite unprecedented. But this isn't historically uh, unprecedented, certainly for the better part of the last few decades or centuries, if you want to go back uh, that far in the struggle of African-Americans for their rights uh, in the United States. Um, And in our immediate past, in the 1950s and 60s of the civil rights movement, uh, you did see very much this, uh, you know, large steps being taken in terms of desegregation, in terms of the Civil Rights Act, uh, but also a great deal of pushback on the part of many Americans, uh, which in many ways culminate in the election of, of Richard Nixon in 1968, uh, who, much like we're seeing today from the current administration, had promised to restore law and order uh, to America on behalf of the silent majority. And, and we're seeing much of that same rhetoric being uh, deployed today in in response to the movements uh, for black justice. You know, uh, we saw a couple of things that maybe we never thought we would see, and that was one, a NASCAR driver, Bubba Wallace, uh, driving with the Black Lives mm-hmm. Matter hashtag emblazoned on the hood of his car, uh, racing last night in a full-on race, and that was just hours after NASCAR itself announced that it was going to ban the flying of the Confederate flag at all its events. Many people call it overdue, uh, while some NASCAR drivers uh, called it a, a joke, saying they, they, they would quit the sport. Why is there still so much controversy over this flag? Symbols are, are a big deal in uh, conversations and movements like this, aren't, aren't they, Paul? Absolutely. Uh, for many uh, Americans, particularly white Southern Americans, uh, the flag is seen as a, a symbol of Southern heritage, of the unique uh, nature of the culture of, of the South within the United States. It's seen as a flag through which uh, many of their ancestors fought and died. Uh, and there are those who are explicit in their attempts to tie it to racist uh, rhetoric. And there are others who see it as being uh, simply, as I said, a form of this heritage. Obviously, for African-Americans uh, and for many Americans writ large, the flag is a symbol of white supremacy of uh, a nation, a short-lived nation, the Confederate States of America, which was predicated on on the maintenance and the expansion of slavery, of keeping uh, African-Americans in bondage. So it is not at all surprising uh, that African-Americans have quite uh, visceral reactions to that flag, uh, despite what many of their white peers may claim that it represents. So it it is is differing. perceptions and historical perceptions. Um, But the flag also, too, even after its uses in the Civil War, has been deployed uh, by those who have been opposed to or wanted to push back against uh, black freedom movements in the 1950s, in the 1960s, uh, in the 1990s. You'll see uh, uh, this flag in, in full display by those who want to resist these changes. And so it serves as a continuing reminder Um, of the subjugation of African-Americans. And so that's why I think uh, it it has proved very divisive um, and it, it is quite remarkable that NASCAR has taken these steps. We've seen protests and calls for change before. It's actually the subject of our question of the day at CJOB.com. Do movements aided by demonstrations like Black Lives Matter or Me Too create real change? Uh, is so, When it comes to this particular situation with the flag, is social media the difference here? Uh, I think so. I mean, social media serves as, is, is a double-edged sword, as we know in many ways. It can be 
uh, a vehicle for mobilizing people at, at, a, at a rate that we have not been that we have not seen before. Uh, we also know too that it can serve as a real uh, vile echo chamber of people shouting at each other and, and not uh, particularly listening to one another. I do think in this case it has served to um, accelerate the pace of change and to alert. Uh, many people, uh, many of those who may not even be aware of the historical and racial legacy of the flag in this case. Um, and so I do think in this way, social media might uh, serve as, as, as a key determinant in, in bringing about this change. There are so many conversations and places we can go here, Paul, and, and you and I had an extensive conversation last night, and one place I'd like to take it is this idea that, well, what's different about this one? We've had uh, we've had different lives lost in the past uh, several years, uh, hundreds of years. There's all sorts of names we could pull out of people who have been uh, killed by police, and, and when we use the name George Floyd, sometimes, they're not often, but there are people that say, well, you know, he was no saint, he had a history, or those, those kinds of, you know, allegations pop up. And you talked to me about this idea about ridding the notion of a perfect victim. Yes. Yes, I think it's very important in, in all movements, but if we just keep the focus here on, on, on the current one, the Black Lives Matter movement, um, there is no such thing as a perfect victim. And I don't think we need to be uh, scared or ashamed of confronting that fact, of being uh, very forthright in terms of looking at a person's life in total uh, and the question I would, I would ask people is, at what point uh, do black lives stop mattering or, or, or lose their value? Is there a particular uh, equation that people have in mind? Is, is, it, is it this blemish on a person's record? Is it two blemishes? Is it a certain kind of blemish? Um, and the answer has become much more difficult because we begin to talk about just the value of human lives at their base. And... Uh, this need to deify or, or sanctify individuals as, as, as saints or as martyrs without blemish, without humanity, I think takes away from the larger issues uh, that we need to confront. What were the larger structural issues that brought George Floyd to that sidewalk in Minneapolis at that point in time? Obviously, it's a mixture of personal choices he made. And it's also a matter of larger structures which he lived his life within and which constrained his ability to live his life. And so I think until we start to address those larger structures that affect the choices that people of color can make, uh, we are going to continue to see this once again. And I would, I would strongly uh, argue that no person's life is worth $20, uh, the alleged amount of the uh, of the alleged counterfeit bill that, that Floyd was accused of passing off, uh, which set off this whole altercation. Paul, we're seeing the sort of a similar conversation on the other side. A statue of Christopher Columbus ended up in a lake in Richmond, Virginia yesterday. And uh, so that conversation about who this person was and what he really stood for and, and the crimes that we can attribute to this person uh, of history is, is, is intertwined in, in the one you just had uh, with regard to George Floyd in my mind. Yes, uh, symbols, as, as you had mentioned before, symbols do have value. Uh, and while it might seem to people that the, these are sort of disparate issues and, and it, it can be overwhelming, uh, the rate of change and, and the, the uh, attempts at change, uh, but symbols do have value. 
and so when you see this discussion over historical monuments and historical statues and, and, and perhaps relitigating the, the legacies of the people that we choose to honor, uh, I think it's also important for people to know that those monuments and those statues uh, themselves are, are acts of historical creation. They, they, are, they were erected by people at a certain time and a certain place to reflect a certain set of values and attach meaning to what those people at that time thought should be remembered. Uh, and all of that is to say that these are not, to, if you pardon the pun, these are not uh, values that are carved in stone. Uh, they change. Um, and what we choose to memorialize, what we choose to remember, uh, is constantly evolving. Uh, and that's not an advocation necessarily for the, the elimination of any and all historical monuments, but it's just to underline the point that they themselves are the products of a historical context. Paul Laurie is an associate professor in the Department of History at the University of Winnipeg. He writes and researches extensively on issues of race, labor, and urbanism in modern America. Paul, thank you so much for the time this morning. Fascinating conversation. Thanks very much for having me. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. We have our winner for the $25 gift card for Manitoba turkey producers. June is turkey month, so through June 19th, we're going to be giving these away. We got a lot of great stories inspired by one of our listeners who sent us a text yesterday morning that was meant for his wife. He gave us permission to use it, and we've had a lot of fun this morning. And hard to, how do you pick a story? We've got so many awesome stories, but this one from Ray. I just go with my, went with my gut on this one, and Ray says... I have had a wrong text sent to me from a girl to her boyfriend describing in detail the evening he was going to experience. I had no choice but to text back and tell her what she had just done and to resend her message to her very lucky boyfriend. I sure wish I could have seen the look on her face while she read my reply. So I replied saying, oh my, how graphic was this text? He says, it made me shiver. She could have been the author of Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh my, So then I I said, damn, man, too bad she wasn't texting you for real. (laughs) And he says, those are my thoughts after I sadly messaged her back. So, Ray, congratulations. (laughs) You got the turkey. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on CJOB. Talk soon.